Ladies and gentlemen, we had a perfect game in the MLB, but not from a pitcher where you would normally see a perfect game. It was from an umpire. This was on Tuesday, game, I believe that was one, game two of the World Series, game two of the World Series. Game two of the World Series, Pat Hoberg. You know, we try, we give, we give the umpires all the crap for the bad calls that they give, but you know what? It's, it's, we got to give them props for, for getting the right calls. And Pat Hoberg did exactly that, a perfect game. This is according to umpire scoreboard, uh, scorecards on Twitter. He had perfect accuracy, perfect overall accuracy, 100% accuracy, called 129 of 129 taken pitches correctly, and then 96% overall consistency, four called balls inside his EUZ, which is the estimated ump zone, and then one called strike outside the EUZ. But other than that, he had 100% called ball accuracy and 100% called strike accuracy. Zero of 40 called strikes were true balls, and zero of 89 called balls were true strikes. A perfect game from Pat Hoberg. One of the best in the game to do it. No uh, no runs or point something runs uh, going in either direction for uh, either team, the Phillies or the Astros. And he did it. He was he was the one. He he did. It. I think that was the first uh, one of the the first uh, perfect um score or scorecard according to umpire score scorecards in uh, I think ever. I think ever. I'm pretty sure the perfect the only perfect game that's ever happened in the history of umpire scorecards calling this. I guess basically, uh, which has been a while since they've basically been around on Twitter pretty much. Which you know has been a while and um you know so congrats to, uh, to, to pat hoberg single-handedly halting the advancement of robots and saying hold on now if pat has any word to say if has, if pat has anything to say about it then it's not going to happen okay we're not going to let the umpire or the, uh, the the robot umpires take over and that's what happened pat hoberg he put a stop to it game two i hope he does home plate for the rest of the series even though they he won't because you know they rotate out off and on every every now and again he's probably not going to be perfect for the rest of this or for the rest of the series or anything like that either and that's okay but hey you know what as long as he's consistent consistently good and he is consistently good he was uh the number one ranked umpire this year with an overall accuracy of 95.5 percent on all his calls according to um scorecards and uh, he was 100 percentile in accuracy 99th percentile in accuracy above expected 97th percentile in favor and 94th percentile in consistency so it was a good season for Pat Hoberg. I wish he, like I said, I wish he would do all the games for the World Series going forward, but he won't, obviously. But, you know, I think if you get a perfect game like this, a perfect umpiring game, you should, like, automatically have a key or a ticket or whatever to the World's, like, to umpire the World Series games. Like, you should always have an automatic, like, okay, you're in. Like, no matter what, you're in doing the World Series games. Because, I mean, if anything, the umpires are looking for the best accuracy and best consistency going forward. That's why we don't see, uh, you know, Angel Angel or Angel Hernandez and stuff like that in the World Series and why he's so upset about it. But uh, if Pat Hoberg is going to do that consistently, then he should have an automatic bid into the playoffs in the World Series going forward. And uh, if he's going to do a perfect game, I mean... <laughs> He should do every single game from behind home plate. If, if that's, you know, maybe we don't even need the umpires or the uh, the robot umpires. Maybe we just need the robot eye of Pat Hoberg behind home plate calling the balls and strikes. So congrats to Pat Hoberg. We, like I said, we give umpires crap for the bad games that they do. We might as well give them crap. Or not give them crap. Give them the props. Give them the props for the good games that they do. And Pat Hoberg just had uh, literally, literally the best that he could do, you could possibly do, is what he just had, and that's what he did. Perfect game for Pat Hoberg in World Series game two. So props to him. That was cool to see. Uh, I'm, 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 you know, a big tip of the cap to Pat Hoberg, a tip of the mask, if you will, uh, the the, the umpiring mask to Pat Hoberg. And uh, I hope we see him behind the plate again. Maybe a game seven or something like that. If it does go seven games, maybe we have to put Pat Hoberg behind home plate in that game, just so uh, there can be no sway either way for uh, for either team for runs given by umpires and things like that. So yeah, congrats to uh, Pat Hoberg and. You know what? The MLB's done it. They found they, they hired a young dude in Pat Hoberg, and he's going to defeat the the robot uprising, the robot umpire uprising that is that is that is coming to the MLB faster than we probably know it. Uh, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Weekend Sports Rep Podcast. I'm your host, James Timberlake. Uh, this week, got a lot of stuff to talk about. Some MLB stuff. We just talked about the umpire, but we got another thing we're going to talk about a little bit in the World Series, NBA. Uh, a lot of stuff going on in the NBA, mainly uh, off the court stuff. There are some, you know, questionable teams right now in terms of uh, how good they are 
And, you know, I don't want to get into that too much because it is, you know, like eight games into the season. And we've seen, you know, the Miami Heat in like 2014 or whoever, when they had LeBron or whatever started, like, I think it was like two and four or two and five or something like that. So, you know, I'm not ready for overreaction season yet in uh, in the NBA, but there has definitely been some stories off the field and off or excuse me, off the court that uh, probably need to be uh, talked about a little bit more. Um, and even though they are getting talked about, but maybe, you know, I, I'd like to put my two cents into the whole situation. Uh, the NFL, obviously, will recap, what is it, week eight? That was week eight. Yeah, we'll recap week eight. Some of the some of the scores from across the league there, some of the, uh, some of the news from across the league there, and then uh, we'll get into some college football as well. And uh, yeah, and then we'll uh, conclude the show after that. So welcome to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast again. Uh, please remember to rate the show, if you would not mind, uh, follow on all of your podcast platforms that you'd like to listen to this on. You can listen to it anywhere. Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, wherever you have uh, the, the the inclination to listen to it, you can listen to it anywhere. So feel free. Also, share to media.com, podcastwyoming.com, wherever you're listening to it. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening or leave a rating if you would if you would be so kind. And uh, yeah, let's let's get into some more some more uh, some more topics here. MLB. We'll, we'll finish this. So. World Series tied 2-2. We were supposed to, or excuse me, 1-1 going into game three. Uh, we were supposed to have game three yesterday. I'm recording this on a Tuesday, so Monday. But I think it got rained out, and uh, it didn't get rained out, but there was inclement weather, whatever they call it. Uh, so they postponed it to Wednesday. So now we have Wednesday. I think it's like I, I the, the from basically game three to game seven, it's all back to back to back to back, which will be interesting to see basically which team can kind of roll with the punches for as long as they can until uh, until the end of the series and how long the games actually go or how long the series actually goes will be interesting to see. But the big thing I wanted to talk about here today is um, Framber Valdez. He is the starting pitcher for the Houston Astros. He started game two, uh, pitched a very good game against the Phillies in game two. Uh, I believe he went six and a third inning pitch. He struck out nine, walked three. Very solid outing. Definitely after the outing that Justin Verlander gave them. That was very disappointing. Justin Verlander does that. In the World Series, for some reason, he's going to win the Cy Young this year. But for whatever reason, and he's good in the rest of the playoffs. But for whatever reason, he gets into the World Series and he just forgets how to pitch. It's truly, truly a bizarre situation that he gets himself into in those moments uh, in the World Series on the brightest stage. He just kind of, he's just not good. It's really weird. Uh, but anyways, from Valdez, um, there has been a. I don't even know what you want to call it—a viral video, if you will, or whatever—on uh, Twitter uh, of you know him doing him uh you know uh rubbing his hands together you know uh putting his you know putting his hands in his gloves and wiping it around and stuff like that and they're trying to the the people in the video and the twitter comments and stuff like that obviously are trying to use this as evidence that he is clearly doctoring the baseball and cheating or whatever but the thing is and this i'm going to be quick about this because i think it is kind of absurd they are trying to grab the grasp at straws in that situation. This is something that's something Framber Valdez has done since he was coming up to the league. I mean, that's his way of uh, basically comforting himself on the mound. Kind of. It's like a tick. You know, if you know, if you have restless leg syndrome, you tap your leg a lot if you're sitting down, that sort of thing. And to him, that's like his tick. They check his hands after every inning. Uh, every umpire does that now. They check his hands. They check the glove, all that stuff. They check the hat. They never found anything during the game. The the Phillies manager never brought it up to the attention of the manager. It's because they know about this stuff already. Remember, but Valdez has been doing that since he was being scouted by the Houston Astros before he came into the league. That was something that was noted on the scouting report that he rubs his hands in his gloves and stuff like that. Stuff that could be taken uh, taken uh, incorrectly if you're the opposing manager. He likes to rub the rosin into his palms and stuff like that to doctor it, uh, legally doctor it with the rosin bag that they give you on the mound. Uh, doctor his hands a little bit to make him a little bit more, uh, get a little bit better grip on the ball. But, of course, it's the Astros, so... Everybody's going to rush to judgment and think that, oh, my God, they're doing it again. They're cheating once again, even though if you're not cheating in baseball, then or if you're not attempting to cheat in baseball. Look, I don't want to dismiss the fact that they did. They cheated. OK, Astros 2017. They cheated. They broke the rules. I, I don't want to take away a World Series ring, obviously, because then that opens up a whole other can of worms that we're going to have to talk about uh, with the rest of the World Series rings that were run during the steroid era, the White Sox World Series ring. I mean, and so on and so forth. But um the fact that I think that in baseball, baseball especially, because it is such a a different game in terms of your sliding scale of greatness, I guess is what you would call it, is so much different in baseball because the the objective failure that you're having in baseball 
is inevitable. Like you, you fail seven out of 10 times at the plate, then you're a Hall of Famer. If you're hitting 300 in your career, if you're hitting three times out of 10 in your career as a baseball player, you're a Hall of Famer. I mean, it's just a different thing in baseball. So anything to get that competitive advantage that um, the Astros or whoever, I mean, it, and it wasn't just the Astros. I sound like an Astros apologist. I agree. They cheated in 2017. I don't think they need an Astros next to their title because that's going to open up a whole other can of worms uh, to their the championships throughout the MLB. We're going to have to open a full scale MLB investigation into basically every other championship ever won in that league. It's just the competitive advantage these teams are always looking for over one another because that 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 scale is so minuscule and it goes from team to team a sliding scale of greatness between a championship team and a bad team or a team that just lost in the ALCS or whatever that sliding scale is so minuscule that any MLB team and you can hear this from former GMs former owners and stuff like that the they'll never admit it outright that they did it but the sliding scale is so small that you'll take whatever competitive advantage that you can get in order to get yourself to that ring, to that World Series, or what have you. The famous phrase that uh, Chicago Cubs first baseman Mark Grace used to say was, if you're not trying to cheat, you're not trying hard enough, was the famous phrase that he said. It was something like that. If you're not cheating, you're not trying hard, something like that. Uh, and I think that goes, that you know, it's it's ironic that that comes from a baseball player because that's what kind, that is the, the overall uh, view of baseball, I think, from a lot of people. And even in baseball, the insiders, I think so many people have tried to cheat in that league that it also kind of just becomes, you know, uh, something you put to the back of your mind, I guess, is is what I would say. You're not going to find teams, even in 2017, there were more than just the Astros that were attempting to do what the Astros were doing. They just got caught doing it. I mean, that's just the case. And they won the World Series doing it, which obviously makes it look a lot worse. If they'd lost in the, in the ALCS or in their divisional round in 2017, I don't know how much bigger of a deal that would actually be. Um, but there are other teams that were trying to do that at the time as well. It didn't work as effectively. Obviously, the Yankees, uh, the Red Sox were reported to have done it, been doing it as well. Uh, it just didn't work as effectively, so nobody talks about it as much. It's it's, it's a similar situation. Um, so, I don't know. The whole Framber Valdez thing, it, it, I guess bringing it back to that, it was it's in his scouting report. He, I, he wasn't cheating. I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear in my mind that he was not cheating. He's done that kind of stuff for since. I mean, if you go and watch Astros games from or, or during the regular season with Framber Valdez on the mound, even in the AL, uh, the wild cards or the uh, ALDS, he was doing that same exact thing. I just think because it was on such a big, a big stage and everybody was kind of watching that it became more of a popular thing to jump onto. And because it was the Astros, it was more of a popular thing to jump onto. But there's nothing there. I mean, there's really nothing there that people should be getting angry about. Framber Valdez, like I said, has been doing that since the Astros were scouting him before. That's just how it's his tick, if if you will, on the mound. Everybody kind of has a tick in those situations uh, that looks differently than others. And that's that's his. He likes to rub the baseball. He likes to rub his hand. He likes to rub his glove. Uh, Craig Kimbrell likes to put his air hand out, his right hand out in the air like he's a hawk before he uh, before he throws his pitch. Everybody has a different tick in that league, especially on the mound, to try to get ready to throw the baseball. And that's just his. And sometimes it looks a little questionable, even though there's no evidence of him cheating in that situation. And I, the fact that it even became a viral video was was frustrating to me. Because I'd like to think that baseball fans and baseball viewers are smarter than that. They're just picking they're they're picking at low hanging fruit, even though it's not, you know, accurate or, or anything whatsoever. I thought I thought we'd gotten past this point where we'd be smarter at looking at what we're looking at and be able to just immediately say, Oh, he's cheating. He's cheating. He's obviously cheating. It's the Astros. This is what they do. Even though Framber Valdez was never on that team in twenty seventeen, and most of the players on that team were not on that team in twenty seventeen. So I don't know. It just it frustrates me to see that that was the the um, and maybe it wasn't the overwhelming majority of the people that were saying that. It's just the one that scrolled up on my feed, which made me angry, which made me angry. So, you know, I mean, baseball is going to baseball. Somebody's going to be doing something in game three that will look questionable to the naked eye for a lot of people on Twitter or a lot of people watching the game at home. But you know what? It's baseball. That's you know, people do weird things in baseball. And again, like Mark Grace said, if you're not trying to cheat, you're not trying hard enough. That was the, that's a famous quote, and it especially works in baseball. You can you can look at GMs have stated things like that, where it, you know they've tried to do things to give them the greatest competitive advantage in that game, more so than any other sport. The greatest competitive advantage they can, because that sliding scale of being successful in that game is so minuscule that even the tiniest things can get you the competitive advantage to get you 
to a World Series and win you a title. It's just, you know, it's baseball. You get you get on base three or, you know, you get on base four times out of 10 and you're probably a Hall of Famer. If you're hitting the ball for a single or a double or whatever, you're hitting you're hitting for average three times out of 10. Then you're a Hall of Famer as well. So. I don't know. It was just a frustrating situation for me uh, for for that to pop up on Twitter and for that to be a a legitimate conversation that people were having was just head scratching and uh, and brain numbing, if you will. Uh, That's that's the MLB. We're going to move on here. We're going to move on to some NBA Uh, game three four World Series is tonight. Uh, So we'll probably have a champion. I think we'll probably have a World Series champion by the time if it does go seven games. Yeah, we'll have a World Series champion by the next week's uh, podcast. So we'll celebrate. We'll start the parade here on Crow Lane, on Crow Lane, seventeen sixteen Crow Lane. We'll start the parade here for whoever wins. That's not true, obviously. They don't know who we are. Uh, all right, moving on. The NBA. Oh boy, oh boy. This broke today. Actually, uh, the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets. What a dumpster fire of an organization that is uh right now uh they are last place right now i i heard this the other day they are in last place for season ticket sales and they have two of the three best players in the nba uh i mean two of the whatever two of the top top 25 best players in the nba nba i'd say between kyrie irving and kevin durant kyrie irving is making an absolute disaster of himself um with everything that he's posting on Twitter and then him trying to come to the defense of it with uh, a, 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 an argument, heated argument, I guess is what you would want to call it over uh, the stuff that he's posting on Twitter with a reporter and then him trying to defend it with that deport, uh, that reporter by just basically, you know, yelling louder and telling the reporter to move on, basically just trying to be as loud as possible, uh, louder than the reporter. That's how he was defending himself. You know, he, he, was essentially called out for for posting a anti-Semitic movie on his Twitter and basically promoting it because, you know, if you're an athlete, if you post anything on Twitter, it's basically a promotion and that kind of goes for anybody's Twitter, but especially in athletes when you have so much range and draw uh, and really anybody with a bigger platform than a lot of normal people. Kyrie Irving is definitely one of those people. Um, it's a promotion if you're posting that sort of thing and it's it's an anti-Semitic movie. I think it's an anti-Semitic book as well. Uh, and uh, And then he gets called out for it by a reporter and the reporters actually, you know, kind of taking not jabs at him, but, you know, questioning why he would be promoting that sort of, that sort of material on his Twitter. And Kyrie kind of just says, uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily believe in a lot of the darker elements of what he posted, but uh, you know, uh, the, the general information is there, that sort of thing. Uh, And then the reporter was like, well, then why did you, if you don't believe in all of it, why would you promote it on your Twitter? And, um, Kyrie Irving would say, you know, Kyrie Irving was basically, don't tell me, don't, don't say I'm promoting it. I'm not promoting it. And then they go back and forth for a little bit. And then after a while, uh, Kyrie Irving is just basically telling the reporter in a louder fashion to move on. He's just being louder than the reporter towards the end of it, which is, you know, childish. It's just childish. The entire thing with Kyrie Irving right now is it gone is a complete disaster. You know how annoying you have to be if you're a Brooklyn, if you're Kyrie Irving, to have to want Kevin Durant to leave you. That's only happened with one other person. It was Draymond Green. Draymond Green was like too much for Kevin Durant. Kevin was like, all right, I'm out of here. He left one of the greatest situations in, in the history of that league with the Golden State Warriors because he didn't want to be with, around Draymond Green anymore because he was so annoying. And I think that's kind of coming up here with Kyrie Irving. The thing is, too, they already pushed away. Kyrie Irving mainly pushed away James Harden to Philadelphia. He didn't want to be on that team anymore. James Harden was like, I don't want to do this with this guy. Uh, on my team, according to the reports, that uh, he didn't want to do this with uh, with uh, Kyrie Irving. He wanted to go to a different place because he couldn't take it anymore, and he got his wish. I mean, that was a a a that was something that they said they had talked about was playing together, uh, James Harden and Kyrie Irving, and then Kevin Durant. Obviously, they him and uh, James Harden had played together, and uh, that was something that they talked about doing in All Star breaks and stuff like that that they would play together, and it, it it fell apart so fast that he was gone. But you know, basically at three quarters of the way through the season because he couldn't do it anymore. He was like, I don't want to, I don't want to play with this guy anymore because he's annoying and kind of a weirdo. And he is Kyrie Irving's kind of a weirdo. And you can kind of see the inklings of that kind of erupting with Kevin Durant as well. Uh, Cause he requested a trade in the off season to the GM of the nets and it wasn't requested or it wasn't uh, granted. So he stayed in, he stayed in Brooklyn. And now I can't imagine uh, Kyrie is to the point where he, or Kevin Durant is to the point where he's like, 
Yeah, yeah. Kyrie, whatever Kyrie's doing, it's cool. You know, it's fine. He's his dude. He's but you can't, you can't do that. You know, he's promoting anti-Semitic stuff on his on his Twitter account. You know, you can't just kind of leave that to the you know leave that to the vine and let it sit there. You know, you're gonna have to answer for it at some point. And Kyrie Irving, you know, hasn't really done that yet. So now Kevin Durant's kind of having to catch the strays for that. And with the strays that are being shot out, uh, you know, the Nets have not started well. I think they're two and five so far in the season as well. And they just fired Steve Nash. As of today, head coach Steve Nash, uh, he's gone. Uh, mutual firing, uh, mutually parted ways as as it was brought up or as it was uh, released in the the media. The media release, obviously, they mutually parted ways, and I think Steve Nash is jumping for joy. I think he is so happy to have left that team. I bet he is high fiving his family when he gets home, and he's like, "Let's get the hell out of New York. Let's get out of Brooklyn. Let's go back home to Phoenix or something, and let's just chill out by the pool or something like that." You know, and I cannot imagine that Steve Nash is leaving that building today, upset at the fact that he that he uh, that he got fired by. The Nets. I think that situation is such a disaster. It's his first time coaching. I don't know if he'll ever want to coach again after that. Because, you know, how do you not leave that situation with the Brooklyn Nets as Steve Nash scarred by the idea of coaching because of what you've just gone through? Uh, Your two players, your two best players tried to get you fired. They made an ultimatum with the GM of basically saying it's either us, the players, the two best players in Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, uh, or you fire Steve Nash and what does Steve Nash do in that situation? Obviously you're not more important than any of the, than the two best players on that team. So, I mean, what do you do if you're Steve Nash there? You can't, you can't rebuttal with anything like that. You know, I'm okay. I'm fired, I guess. So I I think if Steve Nash is walking out of there, he's he's walking out of there with a smile on his face. Cause he's like, I do not have to deal with that drama anymore. He can go and relax somewhere else. Go be an assistant coach somewhere else. Steve, I think Steve could be a decent coach. I mean, he ran a very good offense with the Phoenix Suns and Mark D'Antoni. I have to imagine that uh, Mark D'Antoni's offense kind of sunk into Steve Nash a little bit because he was so good with uh, Mark D'Antoni's offense. So I got to imagine he has some sort of idea of how to run an offense. And I think he could be a pretty good head coach. Maybe maybe not a head coach right now, but a pretty good assistant coach right now worked up to a head coach. I think he could. Think of the Jason Kids of the world. Jason Kidd's never been a great head coach, but I think Jason Kidd can kind of do the same thing where you can kind of work your way through the system. But granted, these guys don't believe that they've never had to work their way through the system Steve Nash and Jason Kidd just kind of you know they were the point guards when they got to their place so the idea of them having to work through these uh, organizations up to a head coach probably just doesn't really fit their uh, their ego or their mindset if you will Uh, and that makes sense obviously they've been you know they've been the best at what they do for so long having to tell them that they're not the best at what they do now it's probably a hard effort so I don't know if if Steve Nash will ever want to coach again and I don't know if he will coach again um but part of me hopes he does because, you know, the, those times with the Suns were a lot of fun as a point guard. And I got to imagine, I have to imagine, I mean, he won two MVPs with those teams. I have to imagine he picked up something in terms of offense, uh, you know, offensive game planning, if you will, through those teams and uh, with uh, Mark D'Antoni as the head coach. I have to imagine that. And, you know, if if he doesn't get an assistant coaching job, maybe Mark D'Antoni comes back and he becomes a head coach somewhere. That's been a lot. There's been a lot of that noise uh, in a lot of different places. He was, I think he was one of the favorites to become the Lakers head coach at one point, uh, even though he was he was the Lakers head coach when Steve Nash was there as well. But, you know, different circumstances. Uh, but, you know, if Mark D'Antoni does come back to coach, maybe Steve Nash will slide in there as an assistant or something like that. That'd be kind of cool. I'd be I'd be interested to see that the the two uh, the coach and the the coach and the player back at it again. This time, both as coaches. That'd be kind of cool. It'd be interesting to see. And uh, yeah, the, the Nets are a disaster. Just a complete unmitigated disaster. I think at some point, uh, if you're the Nets GM, you have to start looking at maybe. Maybe maybe Kevin Durant was right. Maybe a trade is a good idea. They're like I said, they're last in season ticket sales. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets are, and I granted, you know, they're a team that still hasn't really baked any roots into Brooklyn yet. They're still a relatively new franchise to that area, and they're never going to outdo the Knicks in terms of fandom in that city. But you know, they still have a little bit of time. They have to kind of uh, bake their roots into the ground of Brooklyn, if you will. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of it, but I mean, again, I don't know if I'd want to go see this team just because of what is surrounding the team at the moment with Kyrie Irving and his weird anti-Semitic uprising, I guess. Uh, and then, you know, Kevin Durant's kind of just catching the strays from it more, more, more often than not. He's just catching the strays from it, I guess. Uh, but he's also, you know, one of the more ego stars, especially on Twitter and stuff like that in the league. So 
I don't know what to expect from the Nets. If I'm the GM in that situation, it's hard. I'm taking a good hard look at the old books. Uh, if anybody wants Kyrie Irving at this point, I don't know if he would get anything out of that because of the whole situation that's surrounding him. Uh, and uh, Kevin Durant, obviously, you'll get a, a decent haul for Kevin Durant to a team that needs a, a small forward in that situation. Look, here's the thing. I said at the beginning of the show, I wasn't going to do two and five overreactions. But I think this is a this is a situation where if you're the GM of the Nets, then we're approaching a point of no return where Kyrie Irving just goes on a, you know, anti-Semitic slander or something like that. Super racist type stuff. And if that happens, then there's no turning back. Nobody's going to want him then either. Uh, and then Kevin Durant, who knows with Kevin Durant at this point, Kevin Durant can still play basketball, obviously. And he's still one of the better players in the league. One of the best players in the league. Uh, you can get, I, I think I would think a solid haul from him. Uh, for trade, you know, picks or whatever, young and up and coming players, uh, or to trade him to a team that's kind of on the fringe, looking in that sort of thing. I still think you can get a decent haul from him. But Kyrie Irving, I have no idea what you do if you're if you're the Nets GM with Kyrie Irving. I have no idea. I, I don't know if you just ride the ship. This time last year, we were kind of thinking the same. We were like, what is going on with the Nets? There's no way this could get any worse. Uh, the whole James Harden and and the rest of that big the rest of that big three situation has been kind of a disaster. What are they going to do? Uh, this, There's no way this could get any worse. Lo and behold, here we are, uh, and it's gotten worse. I think it's gotten worse. It's become an off-the-court issue with Kyrie Irving, and now it's gotten a little weird into like the racist ter- or anti-Semitic territory, and uh, now I really have no idea what you do because I don't know if anybody's going to want Kyrie Irving. At some point, I would have to imagine the NBA is probably going to bring out some sort of form of punishment to Kyrie Irving for what he is saying and posting on Twitter or something like that. Uh, I would have to believe, but I, I mean, I could be wrong. Uh, I, I really don't know what to expect from this season for the Nets. They are the, they're like a car crash. You, you really should take your eyes off of, but you can't because it's like, wow, this is a dumpster fire. This is truly a disaster. And uh, you know, it's, it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch. It's fun to watch it all burn around them just because, you know, you know, they, they, it's just fun. I don't know. It's weird. It's fun to watch. That's the, I mean, that's the, that's the core, the core value of it, I guess, is it's just been fun to watch so far. It's a good time. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if the Nets will figure it out. If they do end up trading people, those, those season ticket sales are probably not going to get any better. And, uh, yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea what they're going to do. Jay-Z owning that team being the biggest storyline feels like so long ago now. Wow. What a time to be alive, huh? For the MO, for uh, the NBA. I have no idea what to expect anymore in the NBA. It feels like there's a new storyline that comes really out of nowhere every single week and every single day, basically from the NBA. So that's the NBA. That's the Nets mainly complete disaster, complete unmitigated disaster. They fired Steve Nash. No idea what's going to happen to Steve Nash. Uh, he's probably skipping out of that office though. If I were him, uh, let's move on. Let's move on. We're going to talk some college football. We had some good college football games over the weekend. Uh, first one, Tennessee, they beat Kentucky. I thought this was going to be so Tennessee, one of the top teams in the country, Right now, I thought this was going to be a trap game because they have Georgia this week. So last week, taking on Kentucky probably seemed like a little, you know, a little less than obviously there. It feels like they were maybe going to be preparing for Georgia and then get snuck up on by uh, Kentucky. But Tennessee is looking every bit as the best team, one of the best teams in the country right now. They beat Kentucky 44 to six. They are completely overwhelming. One of the best teams. Is there going to be a scenario in the college football playoff this year where we have three SEC teams? Just think about that for a second. Tennessee beat Alabama, so that's a solid win. One of the best wins you're going to get all season long, no doubt. Uh, you have Georgia. Georgia plays Tennessee this weekend. Uh, a one versus two matchup in Georgia versus Tennessee. So if Georgia loses to Tennessee in that game, that's not a bad loss. That's literally the best team in the country. Uh, if, if Tennessee beats Georgia, that's not a bad loss for Georgia either. Uh, and then you go into the the uh, SEC title game. It'll be either Tennessee or Georgia in the East and then Alabama more than likely in the West. And whoever beats whoever in that game, if it's close enough, I think you can, I think you can legitimately, depending on how it all shakes out, obviously, Big 12, if they have an undefeated champion, then obviously they're going to get the nod. But I think there's... Um, I think there is a genuine argument to be made where you could slot in a two loss Tennessee, a two loss Georgia, uh, yeah, two loss Georgia or two loss Alabama team into the fourth while you have Tennessee and Georgia taking up third and second or second, first or whatever uh, in that in those rankings. I think it's not out of the realm of possibility. I think this could be the first year we see something like that. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it because these are I mean, 
one, two, three, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama really have looked like the best teams in the country this year so far, I would say. And I don't know how much closer it gets. Michigan has looked pretty solid, but they haven't played too many tough opponents this far. I think they, they played uh, Penn State two weeks ago, I think, and that's the hardest game they've played so far. We'll see where they end up taking on Ohio State in a few weeks. Ohio State, I guess, is the, the fourth team that would probably be in the top four. I mean, obviously, they've been uh, very, very good. Um, but, you know, I think it's Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, and uh, in Tennessee at this point. And I, I think the drop-off from there is, is relatively pretty good uh, in terms of overall greatness as a team. Uh, you know, Michigan, solid run team, great defense always under Jim Harbaugh. Uh, but their passing game hasn't looked all that good so far. And, uh, you know, that's kind of been the forte for Michigan for as long as they've been there, uh, as long as Jim Harbaugh has been there. But it feels like Ohio State is definitely the better team out of the Big Ten. And the rest of those three teams in Tennessee, Georgia and Alabama are better than Michigan all around. So I don't know. I really have no idea what to what to think. I think this could be the season where we have the three SEC teams and then Ohio State out of uh, the the Big Ten or, you know, TCU, God forbid, out of the Big 12 for not God forbid for anybody else, but God forbid for ESPN. I don't think ESPN would be happy to include TCU in their college football playoff package. Just like they probably were not happy throwing Cincinnati into their college football playoff package and get blown out uh, by Alabama that season. Uh, so I, I really, I don't know. I think this is if t- if TCU comes out undefeated to the Big 12, then obviously they're going to slide in there. Ohio State, they come out undefeated, they're obviously going to slide in there. Uh, so then you're just dealing with basically a one loss Georgia or a one loss Tennessee team or a one loss Alabama team at that point. So they're all playing each other. That's the this is the great thing about college football. Okay, it, Tennessee beat Alabama. Alabama is more than likely going to get another shot at Tennessee if Tennessee wins this game against Georgia. They're more than likely going to get another shot at Alabama. In, uh, in the SEC title game. And who knows what happens. Maybe Alabama takes their shot. And they actually win that game. Or Tennessee goes undefeated. And then Alabama's looking at the outside. Looking in into the playoff. Who knows. I, that, that's the great fun part about the college football playoff. It really is kind of just completely random. And then you have uh, you know USC out of the Pac-12. They haven't, you know, they've looked okay, but their defense is kind of a disaster. The Lincoln Riley special, his offense will look incredible and the defense will do basically nothing, giving up 37 points to Arizona, winning 45 to 37. That's the Lincoln Riley special. Who knows where they're going to end up? Oregon's looked very solid. They're 7 and 1 in the season, 8th ranked. Oklahoma State was in the top 10 and then they got shut out by Kansas State. That was the other game I wanted to talk about. What the hell happened? to Oklahoma State. What the hell happened? I have no idea what I was expecting out of the game. I didn't put any money on Oklahoma State. Thank God for that. I didn't put any money on any of these games. Thank God for that. Uh, but Oklahoma State shut out by Kansas State on the road. I uh, I, I don't think I would have expected a shutout from any of these teams, especially in the Big 12. The Big 12 is not known for getting shut out. Oklahoma got shut out by Texas earlier this year. Uh, but this game, I think, was more surprising than that game with Texas shutting out Oklahoma. Texas had the quarterback injured, or excuse me, Oklahoma had their quarterback injured in that game. And I think everybody kind of knew that if, if Dylan Gabriel went out for Oklahoma, that that entire offense was going to be a disaster without him. And that was basically the case for Texas and Oklahoma. But this game, ah, oh, man, I had no idea what to expect out of that game. Uh, and it was not that. Uh, Will Howard going almost 300 yards for four touchdowns for Kansas State. Deuce Vaughn, freaking Deuce Vaughn doing doing what he does. Little five foot eight dude, 22 carries, 158 yards and a touchdown in that game, shutting out Oklahoma State. What a game. Uh, what a game for Kansas State. They're, they're going to be, I mean, they're 20, 22nd ranked in the country now. And uh, I, that that's only going to go up as the college football playoff ranking come out this week and um, we'll see where that team ends up. But they're, you know, they're not vying for a playoff spot, obviously, but I mean, neither is Oklahoma state now with two losses and getting shut out by Kansas state. It's over. I mean, that, that season is over. They're not making a playoff run at all. Uh, that's too bad of a loss to even come back from, even if they had one loss, in my opinion, I don't think they can come back from getting shut out on the road to Kansas state. So yeah, uh, that was the other big game of the weekend that I was more, I was kind of stunned to open the, the ESPN app or something like that and, and look at the, look at the scoreboard. I was like, holy cow, what is Oklahoma State doing? Uh, anyways, let's move on here. Conclude at Wyoming. They beat Hawaii. That was a pretty good game for Hawaii. Maybe a little, or excuse me, a little, a pretty good game for the Pokes. Uh, maybe a little closer than, uh, Wyoming would have wanted. Maybe, I, you know, probably a little bit too close. They probably, they should have blown out Hawaii, but they were very clearly sticking to a game plan. They were running the ball a ton, uh, and, you know, they outgained Hawaii. So I, I don't know how much you can really complain 
with a win if you're if you're Wyoming in that scenario. It wasn't Titus Swin that was dominant in that game like I thought it was going to be though. Uh, if I would have put money on it, I would have said the over on Titus Swin rushing yards and the whole the whole shebang. But it was not him. It was not him in that game. I don't I don't think he got hurt in that game or anything like that. Maybe they were he was nursing an injury or something that I didn't I wasn't aware of. But he only had five carries for fourteen yards. Uh, so I, maybe he was you know, a nursing an injury or something like that, that I wasn't aware of. Uh, but it was DQ James for the Wyoming Cowboys, the true freshman, 14 carries, 179 yards, didn't score, uh, but you know, 179 yards, that's a pretty good day on the ground. And then Andrew Peasley, he didn't throw the ball very much. Didn't have to throw the ball very much. He did run the ball 14 times for 71 yards and two touchdowns as well. So it was a, it was a rushing clinic for the Wyoming Cowboys in that game. So maybe a, a little bit bigger in terms of margin you would have liked to see, but rushing for 365 yards in a game and only passing for 76 and still winning by seven is still, I mean, that's, you know, you can walk away pretty happy from that if you're the Cowboys. So they're six and three now. Cowboys are six and three, four and one in the conference, a solid year so far for the Cowboys. Now, don't go and screwing it up now, Cowboys. Okay. You got, you got a big game coming up this week or not this week, next weekend. Excuse me. They have a bye this weekend. Next weekend, big game. It's at Colorado State. At Colorado State, the big, the big rivalry game that happens every year. You've won three in a row now. Don't go and screw this up now on the road at Colorado State. You got to buy this week. You can prepare for it. Colorado State, decent team. They have one of the better uh, secondaries in the or in the NCAA. So, you know, I, you know, it's going to be similar situation to Utah State. They should be able to run on Colorado State, but we'll see. Well, I'll have a preview of that one a little bit later. I'll do that one a little bit more next week because it is a bye this weekend for the Cowboys. But 6-3 and three on the season. They're second in the Mountain West, uh, the Mountain standings behind Boise State. Boise State's undefeated in the conference, and uh, they're 6-2, and two, so... That'll be a huge game coming up to Boise State if uh, in the next two weeks Boise State hasn't lost in their conference. If they come to Wyoming against Boise State, that'll end up being a huge matchup if both teams are undefeated uh, uh, into that point. That'll be the 19th of November, so the weekend before Thanksgiving, I guess is what you could call it. Uh, if both teams haven't lost up to that point, that'll be basically a game for first place in the mountain standings, and then they close out the season at Fresno State, Wyoming does. So, uh, which Fresno State is first place in the West division of the Mountain West standings. So a couple uh, pretty tricky weeks for the Mountain West uh, for the uh, the Cowboys these these next few weeks. If the Cowboys can come out, you know, three and zero, then that is a very successful, very successful season. Uh, if they drop all three, fall at six and six, you know, it's that's the guy. The Cowboys we've been li- they've been living the six and six lifestyle for as long as I can remember. So you know, I think six and wins they're bowl eligible. That's all you can kind of hope for. You want to win the conference, but Boise State is still kind of a juggernaut. So you know, I think bowl eligible at this point is a pretty solid start, especially after the the shellacking they took at the start of the season. We were all kind of like, ooh, that's that's not good. That we were we were all like, oh no, how many games are we going to lose this year? How many games are they going to lose this year? Uh, but they've turned it around. They won three in a row after that first loss. They lost two in a row towards the end of October-ish. I can't remember. It was BYU at San Jose. Not the end of October. Towards the beginning of October. Uh, end of September, if you will. BYU and San Jose State. And now they're on a three-game win streak once again. So, you know, uh, I think pretty decent game, season for the Cowboys so far. If they go up to 9-3, and three, though, I mean, that's one of the better seasons I think they would have put together, especially after that first loss in the season. And Illinois has turned out to be a pretty solid team. They're going to be leading uh, the pack in the Big 12. Um, I don't remember if it's East or West. It's one of the, I mean, I, I never remember these divisions, but it's not the one with Ohio State and Michigan, essentially. Uh, Illinois will be, Illinois will be leading that division probably into the Big Ten championship game if uh, if they don't lose out here or something like that. So you look back on that loss and it's kind of like, okay, I mean, now it makes sense because it's one of the better teams in the Big 12 is what Illinois is. So, you know, a good turnaround for the Cowboys so far. I, I very, I've, I've been impressed. I'm, I've been gleefully impressed by how the Cowboys have turned their season around more so uh, in the at the very beginning of the year than I thought they would. Um, that Air Force game, could have been ugly, but they ended up scrapping away that game. Utah State as well. New Mexico could have been a trap game. They won that game. BYU, we all kind of expected that game to be a loss. San Jose State probably should have been a win, so you could have been 7-2 and two at this point if you're the Cowboys. Uh, but, you know, what's done is done. So, good season for the Cowboys so far, but Murderer's Row coming up in November. It's Championship November, if you will. And that's, that's what's coming up with uh, Colorado State next weekend after they're by this weekend on the road. It'd be Colorado State. So we'll see what happens with the Cowboys. If they go three and zero. That'd be that'd be as good of a three and zero stretch I think that they've ever had uh, in the history of that 
in the history of that, uh, that not, not in the entire history, obviously, but since Craig Bull was there, I'll say that. And I think since Craig Bull was there, that would be one of the better stretches that they could go on is if they went three and zero against that murderer's row of teams of Colorado state, uh, Boise state and Fresno state to conclude the year. That would be, that'd be an impressive coaching job from Craig Bull. If he's able to pull that off. Um, but we'll see, we'll see what happens. Uh, let's move on to the NFL. The NFL is this weekend. It is trade deadline as well. And we've got some trades that are going on out the wazoo as I'm recording this. There are some things going on here. The first things first, uh, let's let's talk about uh, Rokon Smith. The Bears are basically, it seems like, cleaning house. Uh, Rokon Smith is gone. Robert Quinn is gone. They both got traded. Roquan Smith, one of the better linebackers in the NFL, especially the middle linebackers, one of the better middle linebackers in the NFL, uh, traded to the Baltimore Ravens. He's going to help out the Ravens team immensely, I think. That's a great trade. For the Baltimore Ravens, Robert Quinn for the Bears got traded down to the um, Eagles. He got traded to the Eagles, which, I mean, the Eagles are only going to get better. The Eagles, it seems like they probably have the best offensive and defensive line in the NFL right now. I mean, I don't think that's too crazy to to say, honestly. Uh, Chase Claypool for the Steelers, he got traded, according to sources. He got traded to the Bears, so are the Bears cleaning house? Were they just taking on another contract with Chase Claypool, even though I think he's still on his rookie deal? I have no idea. I don't know what to expect what the Bears are doing. I don't know what they're doing. They're getting another trade piece to trade him as well. Maybe he's getting a sign and trade. I don't know if that's how that works in the NFL. I don't know what's going on. NFL's going crazy. Uh, Lions, they traded TJ Hawkinson, one of the better tight ends in the NFL, to the Vikings. Vikings are getting loaded up. I mean, they're 6-1 and one now in the season, so they should probably be loading up. Uh, for a, a a championship run, that sort of thing, even though I still don't think they're one of the better teams in the NFC. They've gotten pretty lucky, I'll be honest with you. Uh, bigger trade for, especially locally, this is one of the bigger trades. Broncos fans, if I'm breaking the news to you, I apologize. Bradley Chubb is gone. I'll give you a second. That broke literally like 10 minutes into me starting this recording for this this podcast. Bradley Chubb he is gone. He was traded uh, at about one o'clock. I think the deadline was one o'clock or something like that today. Uh, the trade deadline is two o'clock. Excuse me. I just read it. Two o'clock uh, is the trade deadline. And uh, and Bradley Chubb has been traded. He's been traded to the Dolphins for, I believe it was a third round pick. Uh, I think they're so the Broncos will be getting a first round pick in 2023, as well as Chase Edmonds and a 2024 fourth round pick to Denver for 2025 fifth round selection along with Chubb. Uh, a source told Adam Schefter. So the the trade deadline is is getting sparks at the moment. Uh, Chase Claypool, like I said, he's leaving the Steelers and going to the Bears. That's a big one. Hawkinson to the Vikings from the Lions, which an in-division trade, you don't see that very often, and that's what just happened. Uh, the Lions trading to the Vikings. Lions, it looks like, are kind of on their way to clearing house. Maybe they're probably going to keep DeAndre Swift and those guys. Jamal Williams, I would be. I would be surprised if they traded Jamal Williams, given... Uh, the injury situation with DeAndre Swift and how difficult he has been to, to keep on the field, but he is more of a veteran guy. I would expect Jamal. I would also expect Jamal. I would not be surprised if Jamal Williams was traded as well. So, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to expect from the Lions, but they're clearly, I mean, looking towards you know towards leaning to cleaning house, if you will, which is which is basically what the Bears are doing. They got Claypool, uh, but they also get a second-round pick with Claypool. So the, the the Steelers are basically like, like, here, take them. Okay, please just get them off our books. It will give you a second-round pick with the same as well with Claypool. And that's what the Bears are doing. They're basically taking the pick in that situation more so than Claypool. So uh, Bears are cleaning house. The Lions are cleaning house. Uh, and then the Dolphins are kind of loading up. They got Chubb from the Broncos. Bradley Chubb is gone for the Broncos. They got him. And then they're also adding uh, a uh, Jeff Wilson Jr., from the 49ers that just happened today as well. Jeff Wilson Jr. traded to the Miami Dolphins from the 49ers. Don't have the rest of that compensation there for the 49ers yet, but you know, keep an eye out. The, the, the trade deadline is quickly closing here. Uh, it's going to end at 2 o'clock as I'm recording this. It's 1.15 in the afternoon. Uh, it's going to end at 2 o'clock on Tuesday today, basically, as of as I'm recording this. So, We'll see where else everybody else goes, but those were kind of the big names that got traded. Uh, Rokon Smith, like I said, and then you know, uh, and then uh, Robert Quinn, and uh, all of the the other big names as well. And then McCaffrey, obviously, that was before the trade deadline, but he went to the 49ers, and he's looked like a a stud in the in that 49er man. He looks great in that in that in that that maroon and gold. I don't know what you call that color. I guess more that crimson and gold. I guess I don't know what the 49ers red is called, but. That crimson and gold, it fits him well. I mean, it looks really good on him. He looks good in that color. Uh, but yeah, that's that's you know, that's the trade deadline. Sorry to break the news to you, Broncos fans. Bradley Chubb is gone. 
He has left the building. He is now in Miami playing for the Miami Dolphins. And it looks like the Broncos are probably, I don't know if they're going to be cleaning house, um, but they have been uh, received inquiry inquiries. That's a weird word inquiries into Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler as well. We'll see if they stay on the team until two o'clock today. Um, but I have not received anything, any news that they have been traded either. So I have no idea. I have no idea what the Broncos are doing. If they're getting rid of Riley Chubb, it's probably safe to say that they're kind of uh, closing up shop for this season. I mean, they've got Russell Wilson for God knows how much longer and, uh, you know, for a lot longer, really, and that they can kind of close up shop when they want to. If this season is not looking the way they want it to, that they can kind of pack it up and then wait for next year and kind of take another shot at it, especially in that division where it's only going to get more difficult as the season goes on to catch the Chiefs. And then, you know, if the Chargers kind of pick it up, I think they're still a better team than the Broncos. But uh, yeah, we'll see. The Raiders aren't good. So at least you could shoot for third place Broncos. That's kind of where you're sitting at at this point. Taking a look at some of the games, though, that happened over week eight. The Falcons over the Panthers. That was the game of the year, and it was for the NFC South lead. And if I would have told you at the start of this year, at any point in this season, that Marcus Mariota, the Marcus Mariota-led Falcons, would be leading that division after maybe, you know, after week one, because, you know, who knows in week one. If I told you that Marcus Mariota, after week four, Marcus Mariota-led Falcons would be leading the NFC South over the Tom, the Tom Brady-led Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Would you believe me? Because I wouldn't believe me. That sounds absurd. And here we are. They're 4-4, four and four, just played the game of the year. Uh, they were basically a, an extra point away from losing that game. DJ Moore made an incredible play in the end zone as the in the waning seconds of that game to tie it up, and all they needed was the extra point. But DJ Moore took his helmet off in the end zone to celebrate, which is, in my opinion, a stupid rule. Let the, I mean, it's a helmet. Why, why, why do they have to leave it on? I don't understand that rule. Just take the helmet off. If he's going to scream and stuff, like, celebrate. Let him celebrate. In that situation, let the guy take a helmet off. Who cares? He's freaking out. One of the, one of the, one of the moments that will always stick in my head of, of referees just kind of ruining stuff and for the rest of my life. I will remember this forever. This is one of the the uh, the marks that will stick with me forever. One of the inklings that I will remember about this situation more than anything. The Stephon Diggs touchdown with the Vikings against the Saints in that divisional round game. Of course, I'll remember that play for the rest of my life. That was one of my favorite moments as a Vikings fan. I'm I'm a younger guy, you know. I don't have a lot of them, but that was one of my favorite moments in the history of Viking in the history of the Vikings. And uh, one of the things I'll always remember: Stefan Diggs gets into the end zone as time has expired. The game is over. There are zeros on the clock. They basically I, I don't remember if they have to kick the extra point or not. I think they did back then, and then they changed the rule after that. But anyways, uh, they still had to kick the extra point. I guess as there were literally zeros on the clock. Stefan Diggs noticed that. He sees it and he takes his helmet off and flings it to the side. And he's like, I'm the guy puts both hands out to his sides, you know, puts them up like the gladiator and says, I'm him. You know, I'm the guy. And then you could see it in the background as the the camera on the on-field camera is like panning around him with his helmet off and his hands are spread out and stuff. You pan around and you see the referee throwing the flag (laughs) for the taking of the helmet off in the end zone as the clock has hit zero and the game is over literally the game is over the 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 referee has to take the flag out and throw the flag because hey we got to follow the rules here no helmet taking off which is so stupid it's like the zeros are on the clock okay the zeros are on the clock let the guy take his helmet off and celebrate however he wants he just did one of the most incredible things that franchise has ever seen, and you're going to flag him for taking his helmet off and flinging it. I mean, come on. I mean, what are we doing here? It's a little bit different for DJ Moore, which is what happened this weekend. There was still time on the clock, I guess, but it didn't affect uh, the ensuing kickoff or anything like that, obviously. It, didn't fa- it did affect the extra point. Uh, granted, fair enough. If he would have made that extra point, I think a lot of people would be like, why did we even do that? But he did miss the extra point, so fair enough. I just think that's kind of a silly rule, especially in that situation. Now, granted, you could just run to the sideline, take your helmet off, and then, you know, scream to the fans and stuff like that. But, you know, he's in the moment. Of course, he just made one of the coolest plays of the day, maybe of the season. Of course, he's going to, you know, he's going to celebrate however he wants to. And then he did, and then the flag comes out, and then it kind of ruins the rest of the game for the Panthers. They don't win the game. They end up losing that game because of that. Uh, not because of that, but mainly because their kicker missed two kicks that he should have made. Uh, but, you know, because of DJ Moore putting them in that situation after taking his helmet off, the kicker missed the kick. But, you know, granted, still, it, it's kind of stupid. Uh, anyways, yeah, that was that was game of the year. That was fun. Uh, I had a lot of fun watching that game. I can't believe 
that was the game for NFC South uh, supremacy, first place in the halfway through the season. That was the game. That was the those were the two teams playing for that situation. So uh, NFC South is a complete disaster. I said a little bit earlier in the in the season, I was like, let's take the AFC South and throw it into the ocean. Let's take the NFC South and throw it into the ocean as well. AFC South isn't good either, but the NFC South is also pretty terrible. The only only redeeming quality for the AFC South right now, Derrick Henry looks like an absolute dude, and he is an absolute dude. He ran for 33 times this weekend against the Texans, and he still put up 200 yards. His fourth consecutive game of 200-plus yards on the ground against the Texans, which is absurd. You'd think the Texans would have learned by now. Like, look, they're just going to pound the hell out of the ball against you guys. And they still can't stop them. They still can't stop them. That's the only redeeming quality of that whole division in the AFC South is Derrick Henry. And we can keep him. Just chuck the rest of it into the ocean. The NFC South, same thing. Just chuck it in the ocean. I don't even care anymore about Tom Brady. They're not good. Just chuck that entire division into the, into the ocean. I don't want to watch them anymore. The NFC South is so bad. The rest, of the, I mean, really, the NFL in its entirety so far this season has been pretty bad. But uh, the NFC South and the NFC South have been pretty special. They've, they've been pretty specially bad, and uh, it only showed. I mean, it, this was a good game, but to be 4-4 four and four in the top of your division is kind of embarrassing, and that's where the Falcons are at this point with Marcus Mariota. So, uh, you know, ugh. gross feeling after the game, but the game was fun to watch. But then afterwards, I look at the standings, and I'm like, what the hell? Like, why? What are we celebrating here? <laughs> you know, first place in the division through week eight, and they've won half their games. They're 500. Uh, anyways, moving on. Quick update. Got another trade deadline. Man, I made a genius call recording this as the trade deadline is, trade deadline is coming to an end here in the NFL. Uh, quick breaking news. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, Calvin Ridley, the, the the wide receiver for the Falcons, speaking of the, of the for the Falcons, that was suspended for betting on NFL games for a year. Suspended for a year for betting on NFL games uh, has been traded. He got traded to the Jaguars. He won't be able to play, obviously, the rest of this year, but he got traded to the Jaguars. I don't know what the Jaguars are going to do. Maybe cut him or something like that. I have no idea. I'm not going to get in the head, get in the head of a, uh, get in the head of the Jags GM, but that's what happened. The Jags traded for Calvin Ridley. We don't know the rest of the compensation, but the Jaguars will be trading for Calvin Ridley form from the uh, Atlanta Falcons. And Calvin Ridley won't be able to play the rest of this year, so. You know, I you know we'll see what happens with the checks. I don't know what they're trying to do. I mean, unless they're cooking up some crazy special stuff, I have no idea what they're doing. Uh, moving on to the rest of the games, the other games from Week Eight. Cowboys beat the Bears, dominated the Bears. Bears were cleaning house basically beforehand. They saw this game and they were like, "Okay, let's get the hell out of here. We're done with this. We don't want to do this no more." We almost had a scoregami in this game too. We were so close, ladies and gentlemen, so close to celebrating today. Uh, I guess Monday, basically, pretty much the whole week. We were so close. It was 49-29. That score has happened before, unfortunately. I think it's happened one time, if I remember reading it correctly. One time or two times or something like that. But if the Bears, in the fourth quarter, as the game was basically over, if they would have gone down and scored to make it 49-36, kicked the extra point and made it, that would have been a scoregami. It didn't happen. It didn't happen, though. I was rooting for it on Sunday. I was really hoping the Bears would go down and score, get a scoregami. Only thing that would have been redeeming of that game, other than the Cowboys are good, obviously. But for the Bears, if they would have got a uh, scoregami, that would have been that would have been big for them. That would have been big for them. That would have been big for them this year. Uh, also, to note of this game, uh, Pollard, Tony Pollard. The dude is a dude. That dude is a dude. 14 carries, 131 yards, three touchdowns. I don't, I don't, I really, really don't understand how that dude is not starting over Ezekiel Elliott at this point. I think part of me believes, I don't know how much of control Jerry Jones has over the starting lineup in Chicago over Mark McCar- Mike McCarthy. I'd, I'd like to think he doesn't really have any of it. He just puts the players out there. But then again, it is Jerry Jones and that was kind of the thing with Jerry Jones is he wanted to control every aspect of the team and that's, you know, I would not be surprised if that also included down on the field who's playing and what time. And he was essentially asked, uh, given Tony Pollard's success on the field, how would it affect Ezekiel Elliott's role going forward? And he said, quote, uh, there's no argument, Jones said after the game via the Athletics' John Makota. Zeke's ability to punish, Zeke's ability to deliver, Zeke's ability, what he does for us in the pass protection, and frankly, Zeke's ability to make big plays are there, and we're going we're, go, we're going to go as Zeke goes. I mean, I really mean he's that integral to our success this year, end quote. That's what Jerry Jones said, and I guess my refrain, my response to that for Jerry Jones would be, have you watched the games? Have you been watching? Have you been watching the games? Uh, 
Tony Pollard looks better in every sense of the fashion than Ezekiel. He's a better than him to uh, his ability to punish Zeke's ability to punish uh, Tony Pollard's ability to deliver has obviously been there. Uh, and he's, you know, uh, he seems more flashy in terms of his ability to break tackles and stuff like that. And, uh, make guys miss and Zeke just seems like he doesn't really have that anymore. Granted Zeke's been in the league a little bit longer. He's dealt with some injuries. Pollard hasn't really, he's dealt with some minor injuries and stuff like that, but Elliot has had to deal with some injuries. Uh, but I mean, it just looks like Pollard has been the more explosive back the entire time. Those two have been playing together, I would say basically. And I'm just stunned. I think part of it has to do with honestly, and I'm being completely honest with you here. I think Jones is maybe coping with the fact that he did sign Ezekiel Elliott to that massive contract and running backs are so hit or miss, not after contracts, but just in general, because of how much punishment they actually take. Uh, it, it's so hit or miss with how much that contract actually pays out. And I think whether he's doing it knowingly or not, I think Jerry Jones at this point is kind of like trying to cope with the fact that we play, we, they probably paid Ezekiel Elliott too much money and they could have had, you know, uh, better guys on the outside, better offensive line, even their offensive line is pretty good. Uh, better guys on the outside, better guys up front, that sort of thing on the defensive side of the ball. And I think maybe he's trying to cope with it, trying to make it seem like he made the right decision. Mainly just in it, maybe, maybe just in his own head, he's trying to make it seem like he made the, made the right decision. When at this point, I think Pollard is clearly the better back in that backfield and uh, has been basically all season, even before this season. I think he was the better back uh, in that backfield. So. I don't know what Jerry Jones is doing uh, with that comment. I, I I think that's a bold take from him to say that it's uh, basically Zeke's backfield to uh, to to control for as for the for the time being. I guess I think Tony Pollard kind of just put out there, they, you know, put the put the league on notice, if you will, that it was his time. But I guess not. I mean, fourteen carries for one hundred and thirty one and three touchdowns. If if it was really if it was a close QB battle or a running back battle, if you will, in the backfield, uh, that would have probably pushed him over the edge. But I guess it really isn't close. And uh, I guess we'll see Zeke at RB1 next week for the Cowboys. So, I don't know. Uh, the Saints, they beat the Raiders. The Raiders, woof, 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 dang. Raiders, what happened, man? Raiders, what happened? Oh, my God. Derek Carr looking not good. Not not very good, Derek Carr, right now. They made Andy Dalton look incredible in that game. Uh, for the Saints, I man, I don't know what's going on with the Raider, the Raiders. Fifth. Derek Carr, 15 for 26, 101 yards and a pick. He threw for 101 yards, Derek Carr did. Josh Jacobs had 10 carries for 43 yards. They were terrible. The Raiders were truly terrible. They're kind of flying under the radar today, to be honest with you, and I think it's maybe because I don't think a lot of people think the Raiders were very good regardless. They were 2-4 and four coming into this game, but man, I mean, that was bad. I mean, I don't think this, a lot of people thought the Saints were very good coming into this game either, uh, but that was... That was rough. That was rough going, what what we were watching there. They uh, they only had 183 total yards. I think I read somewhere they crossed the 50-yard line once, and it was when the game was basically out of hand in the fourth quarter. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that was... I, I don't know how you go a week long. In the NFL, of all things, uh, a week long with a with a, with a offensive-minded head coach in Mike McDaniel... Or, excuse me, not Mike McDaniel. Um, Josh McDaniels, uh, the former Patriots offensive coordinator. I don't know how you go into a game like that as the offensive minded head coach and get shut out to the new Orleans saints. Uh, I think the saints are pretty solid defensively, but you shouldn't be getting shut out by the new Orleans saints. Uh, if you're the Las Vegas, especially with the skill guys that they have with Devonte Adams, Josh Jacobs is a very solid back. Derek Carr just disappeared, even though he's performed, especially in the earlier games of the day. Trust me. I mean, I know what that feels like with Kirk cousins. Uh, he, they just disappeared in this game. I have, I mean, woof, woof, bad game, bad game for the Raiders. I, I have no idea what to expect from the Raiders going forward this year um, in and that team as a whole as they go forward. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do with their car. Josh McDaniels might be on the hot seat already at two and five after getting shut out like that. I mean, I think that's probably pretty fair to say, to be honest with you, uh, given his track record at the head coaching position. Uh, moving on, Patriots, they beat the Jets. That game was awful. I did not. That game was truly terrible. That was a tough game to watch. That was kind of the epitome of the medi- mediocrity of the NFL right now. Those were the two teams that you can kind of point to that are, even the Jets, I mean, they're five and three, but man, they don't have a quarterback. I mean, let's just be honest. He went 20 for 41. He did have 355 yards, but he threw three really bad interceptions, three really bad interceptions in that game that basically cost them the game. Um, 
And yeah, he was just, I mean, he threw for a lot of yardage. He completed less than 50% of his passes though. Not great. Um, but 355 yards is quite a bit, but he did throw really three really bad interceptions. Seems like he's bumping heads, not him necessarily, but his play style is bumping heads with some of the wide receivers though, as well. Elijah Moore, their wide receiver for the jets afterwards was kind of, uh, not complaining, but issuing his, uh, his, uh, struggles with the offense, I guess, with Zach Wilson saying he doesn't get the ball. Uh, so he has no idea how to comment on his chemistry chemistry with Zach Wilson. I mean, Elijah Moore's probably gone, not in strictly, not strictly because of that comment, but he's kind of been making comments like that for the last few weeks. And uh, I mean, I would be surprised to see Elijah Moore in a Jets uniform come next week. Uh, I just think that's not really a good thing to have in the locker room, especially with a young quarterback in Zach Wilson, who's still trying to get the get the reins and get the feel of things um, as a quarterback in this league. I, I don't think that's a good thing to have in the locker room at the wide receiver position. If that's the case, um, Garrett Wilson, he seems to figure it out fine. I mean, he went six receptions for 115 yards in this game. So, you know what, Elijah Moore, maybe it's you. You ever think of that? You ever think of that, Elijah Moore? Maybe it's you, huh? How about that? Uh, Mac Jones, he wasn't any better in that game either. Uh, maybe a little bit better, but he did you know, he didn't perform. He didn't perform great either. Uh, 24 for 35, 194 yards. He threw a touchdown and a pick. He threw a, one pick that should have been a pick six, and that should have been a pick six, would have been a pick six, but there was a foul, a penalty on the play, then ended up drawing it back, uh, and it was a bad pick as well. It would have been a pick six. That would have, I think, switched the game, kind of flipped the game on its head, uh, but I really had, I mean, this game was kind of all over the place, um, and it was a shame that either one of these teams had to uh, had to, had to to uh, win this game because they were both bad, and uh, yeah. Defenses were good. I mean, the defenses both played pretty good. Three picks for the Patriots defense. I had them in DFS, and I was very satisfied with the fact that they had three picks. I was very happy. Um, but yeah, the the fact that this game was uh, being televised to the national viewing audience was very, very unfortunate because it was truly, it was the epitome of the mediocrity of the NFL right now. I mean, you could have one solid aspect of your team, like the Jets have their defense. Their defense is very solid. Uh, but then you have like Zach Wilson throwing three really bad picks, and that'll cost you the game. And that's just how the NFL goes this season so far. Uh, the only one we want to quickly talk about 49ers. They beat the Rams. I really thought the Rams were going to do it. I thought the Rams were going to beat the 49ers, but lo and behold, lo and behold, Kyle Shanahan works something up, digs something up. And he says, you know what? We're just going to work. We're just going to do this and comes out in halftime and just dominates the Los Angeles Rams. And scored 21, nothing in the second half outscored the, the, uh, for the Rams in that game. And, uh, it was complete domination after that. The the 49ers won 31 to 14. And uh, man, the Rams Rams are in a tough spot. I really don't know what the Rams should do. I don't know if they should be buyers. If they should be sellers. They already sold basically their soul for last season's uh, last season's uh, Super Bowl victory. They don't have any picks coming up. They're a bad team this year. I don't know what they're going to give away to try to get people uh, to this team. They don't have, like I said, they don't have draft capital. Uh, Cooper Cup is the only uh, real weapon they have on the outside the running back situation is a huge question mark uh matthew stafford is i still think a decent quarterback but he's made some very questionable decisions not to mention he's getting hit an absolute ton in this season and their entire line their entire uh, offensive line is completely different i have no idea what the Rams should be doing uh if they are selling they better be getting a ton of picks even though that front office doesn't believe necessarily in draft capital and draft picks or anything like that so I don't know what the Rams are going to do. I really have no idea. I, I don't think they're going to be able to compete in this division, though, to be honest with you. I think the Niners are clearly better. Uh, the Seahawks, for of all things, seem to be better. Uh, I, I have no idea. I don't know. I think they're sitting at third place and a hefty third place. I think the Niners are still probably the best team in that division, uh, but the Seahawks have been proving people wrong all season long, and, I mean, they're 5-3. and three. So I, I don't know. I don't know what to take from the Seahawks team. 49ers definitely look better than the Rams, though. And uh, we'll see at the end of the season where both these teams land. But right now, it feels like the Rams are third place. Cardinals are definitely fourth place. And it feels like a distant, distant third place to second and first. So we'll see what happens with the Rams. I don't know. I really don't know what they're going to do uh, offensively, you know, because that, I mean, their offense is bad. Uh, but, you know, more or less as a team, I don't know what they're going to do because they did decide to get rid of all their draft capital and uh, basically sell their soul for the Super Bowl last year, which, you know, fair enough. They're going to live. They're going to live forever. That team, quote unquote, will live forever now because they won that Super Bowl. But I mean, I don't think there's any shot at a dynasty at this point because of how that bad that team has kind of turned into because of the offensive line problems, because of the lack of weapons other than Cooper Cup and because of, you know, the lack of weapons at the running back position. I don't know. I don't know what to expect from the Rams. Uh, so that's the NFL. That's the NFL week eight. That's uh, it's a good week. Fun week. Lots of a decent game in the 11 o'clock hour. 
decent game, decent game in the two o'clock hour. And then Sunday night football was pretty fun uh, with the, the bills and the Packers. And then Monday night, Monday night wasn't great. Monday night wasn't great. That was kind of a bad game. Uh, the Bengals did not show up whatsoever. They got completely blown out. They lose Jamar chase for the next few weeks. And, I think they could very well go, you know, not win a single game based on what we just saw. I mean, Cleveland absolutely dominated that team, and uh, I have no idea what to expect from the Bengals now either. Without Jamar Chase, uh, they can very easily go uh, go winless throughout for the rest few weeks until they get Jamar Chase back. I have no idea what to expect anymore from that Bengals team, and they got dominated in Monday Night Football. So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, week nine, we're halfway through the season now, ladies and gentlemen. After the eleven o'clock games last week, we officially hit halfway through the regular season in the NFL. Time's fine. Time is absolutely fine. We're going to have Thanksgiving in no time. Thanksgiving football is going to be upon us in no time. It's the first of November. You know, Thanksgiving football is nearly here. And then Christmas, my favorite time of year, the the, the party, the place in between Thanksgiving and Christmas day is my favorite time of year, just because of the, uh, forgive my language for it, the vibe, I guess, if you want to say the vibe of the, of the, of the community and stuff like that. It's just super cool, and I love Christmas time. I love Christmas music. Everybody that anybody that hates Christmas music is a liar. Okay, you can't hate Christmas music. You can't hate Christmas music. I think people just hate Christmas music because it's the popular take, and they're wrong because Christmas music is goaded. So I don't want to hear it. We're coming upon that time, and I could not be more excited. We're gonna have Thanksgiving football right around the corner, and uh, I'm I'm already getting ahead of myself. So we're gonna you know what we're just gonna stop the show here today right now. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. This has been the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. I want to thank you very much for tuning in. Please remember to rate and uh, follow the show on any of those podcast platforms that you listen to your podcasts, Heritage Media, PodcastWyoming.com as well. So thank you very much. And remember to rate. Uh, I've been your host, James Timberlake. <laughs>